chapter 16. Anybody recognize the picture on the screen right there? No, you, this is not a real popular place uh, unless you've actually been over to Israel. But what we're going to do this morning, we are going to look at a, a dis, very disputed passage of Scripture. And then I'm going to give you a little tour of a place in Israel, give you a little history of that place, and see if some knowledge about this location can actually help us understand how to interpret this difficult passage of Scripture. Because this is one uh, people like to fight about a lot. And uh, what was interesting, the other day, um, I was listening to a pastor. I, I, I think, I, I, I won't say who it is because I can't remember for sure if it was him. But um, I was listening to this pastor and he was talking about this passage of Scripture here. And he gave an interpretation of it I hadn't heard before. And I was just like, wow, that was really simple. And sometimes the simplest interpretations are the most accurate ones. And, um, and so some still might want to dispute it. But I'm telling you, if we actually look at this location, look at some of the history about it, and then I'm going to kind of share an interpretation with you of this passage. And I, you know, you're, going to, you're going to look at it and it's like, that's probably what the Bible's saying right there. So I'm not up here drawing a hard line on anything today. So you know, uh, this is one of these things... People might have differing opinions on a little bit, and that's not that big of a deal. But look what it says in Matthew 16, 13. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And we see this story in two different accounts uh, of the gospel. And um, we have that famous verse in there where Jesus says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, the prevailing schools of thoughts on that are that uh, Jesus was talking about Peter and that he's the rock that the church was built on. Now, independent fundamental Baptists they do not like that interpretation at all because of the fact that Catholics take that and then they jump to the conclusion that that makes Peter the first pope and the rock the church was built upon and blah, blah, blah. Okay? And if you, if you go over to Israel in Capernaum, they have this statue of Peter there uh, holding keys and, uh, think, you know, and it's kind of representative of him having the keys of uh, the kingdom of, or the uh, things of hell and all that. And so, um, Baptists, in order to uh, refute what the Catholics have shoved down people's throats for centuries, they've kind of, I don't know, maybe went too far the other way. Because if Jesus called Peter a rock that he's going to build a church on, that's not that strange, seeing that the Apostle Paul said we're all lively stones, you know, talking about the building, that we're all stones in that building. He said that the church is built on the foundation of the Apostles' And prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. 
So it's not like this horrible thing if Jesus was saying that about Peter. It doesn't make him the first pope. It doesn't make Catholicism right. The, you know, and it's just the Catholics taking a statement and then jumping to some crazy conclusion with it. So that's not a horrible interpretation. But then most IFB, the way they teach it, they insert hand gestures, gestures into the scriptures where no, what Jesus was actually saying is thou art Peter. If you go to the Greek, that's talking about a pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Talk, so he's talking about himself. And it's like, okay, uh, I see what you're saying. Nobody disputes the fact Jesus Christ is the most important thing. Okay, no, Nobody disputes that. But it seems like we're kind of complicating this a little bit. Now, another false doctrine that comes from this passage is this is the first time we see the word church in the Bible. And so dispensationalists use this to separate the church from Israel. And they will tell you uh, that Jesus started the church and this is proof. And if we use the law of first mention, okay, which is not a law, okay, that's a principle of biblical hermeneutics that scholars came up with. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always prove everything. And they will ignore the fact that the Bible in the New Testament talks about the church in the wilderness. But, uh, and even though church and congregation are synonymous in the Bible, even though when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, where it says congregation in the Old Testament, and the New Testament quoting it says church, uh, it's still not the same thing. And proof, the law first mentioned. And, there, and so they will use this to separate. That's dumb. Okay? That's dumb. Now, this passage of Scripture right here, it, was, it's, it is. It's kind of something that's by itself. It's like another story of many stories that we have in the Gospels. And we are seeing Jesus confess who Jesus Christ is. And, I, and obviously there's a, a lot to this. But we never want to let somebody you know, just isolate a passage of Scripture, especially a mysterious one, and then attach a bunch of crazy doctrine to it, especially if it doesn't fit the rest of the Bible. And so... What we're going to do this morning, we've already looked at this scripture. We've kind of looked at some of the different things taught about it. But here's the question. Should we let history and geography influence us in how we interpret this scripture? Or should we only let the Bible influence us? Now, a lot of people would like to say, well, I only let the Bible influence me. Okay, well, that sounds good. Will you let this part influence you? The very first part of the story, notice what it says. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Now, why did it give this detail? Obviously, this detail is here for a reason. It was when he was in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, now, what does that mean to you? Well, if you only let the Bible influence you, you're gonna have a t it's not going to mean a whole lot because of the fact, I believe that's only mentioned two times in the Bible, and it's in the same story. So the thing is, and in the Old Testament, this area was known as Baal Hermon or Baal Gad, and uh, during the Greek Empire, this area, the name was changed to uh, Caesarea Philippi, and uh, Philip, he named it after himself. And so there's a lot of history there, but a, a lot had changed in this area from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This was a very uh, major area during the Greek Empire. This was a very pagan area during the Greek Empire. And so we're going to kind of look at some of the history about this. And then see if maybe that can help us understand what Jesus was trying to say when he said the things that he did. Because this is, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. And so, um, 
so first off, let's go to, or let me read some history. Well, let me show some pictures first, and then we'll read some history about this place. So right here, if you go to Israel, they will tell you this is Caesarea Philippi right here. And this is a very famous place where Christians go because they'll tell you this is where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus said, thou art Peter upon the rock, I build my church and so on. And so we'll kind of look. Uh, so we've got this picture. I took this one in 2023. I took this one back in 2000. This is an old crummier quality picture. Uh, I went there a long time ago. There's me. Check out that drip right there back in 2000. Now, I'm not 100% sure this is the same place because it looked a lot different when we went there. This time there wasn't near as much water. But I was trying to find this waterfall spot because I wanted to recreate this picture. There's, and, and I couldn't find it. There was, there was very little water there. It does seem like some stuff has changed there. But um, that was how I got my wife uh, with that look. Uh, was shortly after that. Uh, here's me there. I tried to recreate this picture too, but I took it at the wrong spot. Uh, um, me all dripped out. But there I am, 2023. It wasn't the right spot exactly. I didn't have the picture with me to recreate it exactly. Uh, but, these are, but these carvings that are in the rock here, uh, this was a very idolatrous place. Supposedly they had a lot of these images in here. And this was a god to Pan. And uh, so uh, where Peter Pan comes from. We'll read a little bit about him in a little bit. Uh, this area today is known as Benias. And uh, that's kind of the modern name of it. But it was Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day. Uh, I got a couple more pictures on here, I think. But yeah, everybody, I don't know exactly what was in there. We didn't have a tour guide this last time, and I can't remember, but everybody stands inside there and gets their picture taken. But anyway, so those are the pictures. I do want to show you a couple of videos because uh, some interesting, uh, interesting things about this spot. So the first, because this is a fascinating area to me when we went there, because they told us some interesting stories. So here's the video. Uh, of Caesarea Philippi. I'm just kind of showing you the place. You can kind of see the water that's there, but there used to be a lot more water uh, than there is now. I don't know. I actually switched to that. But here, if you go along here, there's some old uh, columns that are there. Um, all, I, all this stuff, I mean, goes way back. Uh, some of it before the time of Christ. And so this was, this was a very pagan area. And this cave that we're going to go, uh, that I'm going to go over to, it used to be full of water. When I went there back in 2000, there was water in the bottom of the cave, and they told us that that was known as the gates of hell. And people believed that that water like led to the underworld. And I remember people there saying how that's super deep there, and nobody knows how deep it goes down. I'm always like, I'm going to send something down there to see how far it goes. And so I was always kind of fascinated with this spot. Uh, I used to have this uh, program. You could do these virtual tours, and it would show that, and it would tell the same stories about how deep this thing went and people believed it was the entrance to the underworld. And so it was just kind of a fascinating place. So I come here in 2023 and I look and it's all dried out and it's not that deep. So it's like, now, now you will notice right there is a hole in the rock, but what it turns out, the water uh, that came in there was from a spring. And I guess back in the, during the six day war, uh, the Israelis, they like did something to divert the water, to cut water off from this area, so it kind of changed things. So a lot's changed uh, there uh, in the last several years. But yeah, so the thing is, nobody would have believed back then 
that that was the entrance to the underworld because you could have just jumped in there and seen it wasn't that deep. But so that was like that was another thing that was disappointing when I was there. So I'm just videoing this, just like completely let down. And I was I was shocked that there was no water in it. But um, but the thing is, even way back then, look, you got all this stuff built up there that's not underwater. So. You know, again, I don't know if sometimes water levels get high and that fills up. Other times it's low. I don't completely understand how all that works. But, uh, you know, either way, I was really, that was another place I went to. And I was just really disappointed when I went there. But uh, let me go ahead now that you've seen the pictures and video of the place. Let me read a little bit about this place. So Benias, is the, uh, that's the modern name for the place. It's a site in the Golan Heights near a natural spring once associated with the Greek god Pan. It has been inhabited for 2,000 years until it was abandoned and destroyed following the Six-Day War. It is located at the foot of Mount Hermon, north of the Golan Heights, in the part of Syria occupied and annexed by Israel. The spring is the source of the Benias River, one of the main tributaries of the Jordan River. Archaeologists uncovered a shrine dedicated to Pan, to Pan and related to deities. The remains of the ancient city, founded sometimes after the conquest of Alexander the Great and inhabited until 1967. The ancient city was mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark under the name of Caesarea Philippi as the place where Jesus confirmed Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. The site is today a place of pilgrimage for Christians. The first mention of the ancient city during the Hellenistic period was in the context of the Battle of Panium fought around 200 to 198 B.C. When the name of the region was given as the Panion, later Pliny called the city Panius, uh, both names were derived from that of Pan, the god of the wild and the companion of the nymphs. I don't know if that's like a fairy. I think that is like a fairy. So Peter Pan, Tinkerbell, straight out of hell, ladies and gentlemen. So just, uh, but anyway, the spring at Badias initially originated in a large cave carved out of a sheer cliff face which was gradually lined with a series of shrines. The Timenos included in its final phase a, a temple placed at the mouth of the cave, courtyards for rituals and niches for statues. It was constructed on an elevated 80-meter-long natural terrace along the cliff, which towered over the north of the city. A four-line inscription at the base of the one of the niches relates to Pan and Echo, the mountain nymph and was dated to 87 B.C. The once very large spring gushed from the limestone cave, but an earthquake moved it to the foot of the natural terrace, where it now seeps quietly from the bedrock with a greatly reduced flow. From here, the stream called Nahal Hermon in Hebrew flows towards what once was the malaria-infested Hula Marshes. So, again, I guess sometimes water does come from there, but I guess water levels are just low when we were out there. But, again, yeah, so in the Old Testament... You'll, the only stories you'll really see from there is when it's like naming borders. It'll say from like Baal Gad or Baal Hermon, and which is a reference to Caesarea Philippi. And so uh, during the Greek uh, period in between the Old and New Testament, this became a very uh, pagan location uh, that where a lot of you know, worship of false gods, especially Pan, was done. And so according to what the history says about this place is for uh, first off, they taught that that place there was the entrance to the underworld. This was a very popular place where people would come 
and uh, there was a lot of idolatry there. This was the kind of place where you wouldn't expect to find Jews. Okay? Now understand, notice what, Jesus, notice what the Bible says. Okay? It says when Jesus was on the coast of Caesarea Philippi. So I don't believe Jesus and his disciples just went and were hanging out, I mean, right on Main Street uh, in this super pagan place. Okay? Jews and belie- uh, believers, they weren't going to go to a place like that. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we would compare it today like a Las Vegas or something like that. Okay? Obviously, you know, a saved person can go to the city, but they're not going to go to like the, what do they call it, the strip where everybody goes and gambles and all that kind of foolishness. I mean, it's Sin City. It's known for its sinfulness. It's known for prostitution. It's known for gambling. It's just known for all this debauchery. And so, like, as a Christian, we would never go to, like, those central locations and participate in in the debauchery. But that doesn't mean we might not go to the city limits and go soul winning there. I'm sure there's a lot of really receptive areas to the gospel. Okay? And, and we probably would do something like that, you know, if the opportunity presented itself. And if we lived closer to the place, I wouldn't be against doing something like that. And I think there's a, a spiritual reason we can get from that, too, from this passage right here. If we actually take into consideration what was going on and let it influence how we interpret this, pa- this passage of Scripture. So, again, there would have been a lot of wickedness associated with this place as they're getting close to this area. And the Bible just says, while they're at the coast of Caesarea Philippi, when the Bible was written, the people would have known, the Jews especially, you know, the book of Matthew, it is geared towards the the Jews. They would have known exactly what this place is. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to say that much. And it would be like if I was, I was just given a summary of some events. And I was like, you know, we were, we were, uh, you know, in the city limits of Sin City. You know, enough said. We all understand what Las Vegas is and what it represents and places like that or, or Atlantic City is another place that I, I don't, I'm sure there's some decent family attractions somewhere in Atlantic City. But why do people go to Atlantic City? Okay. Debauchery, gambling, and just giving in to all the things of the flesh. That's why, that's why they go to a place like that. You don't go to a place like this unless you're into spiritual wickedness and there was probably a lot of it now here's the thing there's some things that i don't think we take into consideration as christians that back then jews not only would they have not wanted to go anywhere near a place like this they probably would have been a little scared of a place like that because of all the spiritual wickedness that went on there because of all the idolatry but you know as christians today typically we're not real scared of those kind of things. Okay? Now, obviously, when it comes to things like witchcraft, should we not be, we should definitely be scared of practicing it, participating in it. But, you know, if you go to a house out soul winning and somebody's a witch, says they're a witch, do you get scared and run away? No. In fact, uh, last year, we went to a house and the lady opened the door and I got this big whoop of something, a smell I wasn't familiar with. And right there on her wall was this big flag that had a, there was a broomstick on it. And I forgot what else was on it, but it was clearly witchcraft associated. And, you know, and I asked her if she goes to church or anything like that. And she said, no, she's pagan, which is another thing that, you know, term they'll refer to themselves as. But she was clearly, clearly into witchcraft. Now, I, I tried to give her the gospel. She let me kind of give her a little bit, 
And uh, she didn't get saved or anything like that. But you know, when I went in there and I smelled that aroma, I don't know what she was burning in there. You know, when I saw that flag and those symbols of witchcraft, I didn't get scared at all. I didn't, I didn't take my Bible and run away. And you know, you know why? Because we actually do have spiritual power over those things. Okay, now, again, you mess with that stuff. You play with that stuff. You try to use those things for your benefit. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. But we're not afraid to combat that stuff. But I'm telling you right now, back then, that wasn't the case. Back then, you know, we see a lot of stories in Israel where you've got people that are demon-possessed, where you, they've got all these unclean spirits on them. Israel was in a very spiritually dark place that was negatively affecting them big time. We're not really used to seeing that kind of stuff today. You know why? Uh, and I'll show you why too, because let me, let's go through this passage again and I'm going to show you what I think may be a better interpretation than the classic ones that you typically hear of this. Knowing all the things. And again, remember, if this place is believed to be the entrance to the underworld... This is another place, too, that the disciples are probably kind of scared of. We, we don't want to go by there. But remember, So Jesus said, Whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's declared Him to be the Messiah. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Okay, what is this rock? What if it is the truth that Jesus is the Messiah? What if that's what he's saying? On this truth, on this rock, that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why is he saying the gates of hell will not prevail against it? You know why? Because he's showing the spiritual power that they will have uh, over, over evil. So he's showing, he's showing the power that they would have over the dark forces of this world. He proclaims this truth in a spiritually wicked place that he would ultimately commission his disciples to go to spiritually wicked places. What did it say? Uh, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore... And teach all nations. Now, how are they... During the Old Testament period, they were supposed to remain separate from all those nations. They they were supposed to stay away because God did not want them learning their ways. They were not supposed to, under the Old Covenant, to go into the world and to reach people that way. They were supposed to remain in Israel. Jerusalem was supposed to be a light. People were supposed to come to Jerusalem. That was what God... Uh, originally ordained and under the new covenant, under the new and better covenant, now we don't have a central location, but the kingdom of God is within us and we take the kingdom of God to the world and we have the power to do that. We have the power to be a light in dark places where under the, during the Old Testament times, as, as Jews, they weren't supposed to go to places like that. They weren't supposed to go to these spiritually wicked places and so I think, so, you know, let me tell you again, why I think this concept might be a little foreign to us is because we have only ever known a time 
where Jesus had all spiritual power. I'm not saying demon possession is gone. I'm not saying, but at the same time too, I do think the devil is a little more careful about how he manifests himself today because of the power that we do have over him. Under that, because of that rock, because of that truth of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, we do have the ability to go and loose people from their bondage by preaching them the truth of the gospel. And, and we do have the power to bind these things. We do have the power to cast out devils. And so I don't think, you know, I don't think these devils are stupid. You know, while before Je- when Jesus started his ministry, while it seemed like, you know, there was quite a bit of uh, situations where, you know, there were demon-possessed people coming along, what do we see happen when the demon-possessed people saw Jesus? Like, art thou come to torment us before the time? It was like they knew they were in trouble when they saw him. And I think they don't want to be cast out. They don't want to be found. And I believe that they are in fear of believers. And so, again, I I think in spiritually dark places of the world, you see a lot more demon possession than you do over here. So what about all the crazy people today? Well, I think there's probably a lot of demon possession out here, but I think a lot of these people too, you know what? I think even if a saved person takes a bunch of drugs, you're going to act pretty crazy too. Okay, you know what? I don't care if you're saved. Go start snorting cocaine and stuff like that and you know, shooting up with heroin and doing all these things people are doing. I'll bet we're going to wonder about you. you know, that's just, that stuff is just very dangerous. But we have only ever known a time where Jesus had all spiritual power. And so I do. I believe there's still demon possession, but I believe it's not as common because of Christians all over the world and the spiritual power we have. But during those days, the Jews had a great fear of dark forces and rightfully so. And listen, I mean, I've had all kinds of people, you know, I, I, you know, threaten me with all kinds of things. And, you know, I've gotten messages from, you know, witches and things like that, too, talking about the stuff they're going to do. Uh, Brother Paul, who preached here a while ago, I told you about him. He had a witch one time, put a curse on him so he wouldn't have any more children. And he had like four more kids after that. And, he, and the last one he had, he was in his 50s uh, when, he, when he had that one. So it's like that stuff doesn't scare us at all. If a witch tells me tonight that she's going to cast a spell on me, I'm going to sleep just fine. I'm not scared of those things. Uh, they, they don't have any power. And the Bible says in uh, Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There are demonic forces out there. They do have spiritual power, but what we have is way more powerful than what they have. And folks, ultimately, what is it that we have? Okay, when, we, and when we start talking about our spiritual power, and sometimes too, you, know, you have these preachers that get caught, all caught up in the spiritual warfare stuff and go into all kinds of weird things, but where does our spiritual power come from? ultimately where it comes from, it doesn't come from our standards and convictions and things like that, even though I'm for all that stuff. It comes from this truth that we proclaim that is the focal point of who we are. It is the focal point of our church and of our ministry. And that is this truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That's what we do. And that is why... We go to spiritually dark places. That, and, and, we're not, and you know what? We're not afraid. You know, a lot of people think we're weird because 
You know, we've gone to, you know, we go to the south side of Chicago and go soul winning. And, you know, and, and I don't believe we're tempting God or anything. I don't believe in tempting God, but, you know, I always feel safe when I'm out soul winning. I, I really do. There's, there's not too many times. I don't even know if I, I can't even really think of any times where I've been scared. I mean, we've been soul winning in Detroit, uh, yeah, all kinds of crazy places. And it's not scary. You know why? We have spiritual power over these things. Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Now, if I was just hanging out in those areas, I'd probably have something to be afraid of. But when we are in those areas presenting the truth that Jesus is the Christ, there's a power that we have. There's an authority that we have. And that power and that authority, it extends all over the whole planet. And so we, we do. We go everywhere. We go anywhere. And we're not afraid of those things. I said, I'm not going to go to Las Vegas and like get involved in the debauchery. But at the same time, too, I would not be afraid at all to go into the city limits, into the coast, you know, into, into, into homes uh, and, you know, even in the streets and proclaim the truth that Jesus is a Christ there. I have the power and the authority to do that. And I think any Christian who's saved, that's great if you get an opportunity to do something like that. And I believe God will be with you. I believe you'll have power and authority to do that kind of thing. Now, again, if you're saved and you want to go get involved in the debauchery, you're on your own at that point. You know, but at the same time, if you just want to uh, preach the truth, I believe we have the ability to do that. And so there can't. And the thing is, there can be and there are many physical dangers in taking the gospel to the whole world in, in certain places. But here's the thing that I want you to get from this. There is no spiritual danger for us when we take the gospel anywhere. That's what you need to get. While the disciples probably were freaked out in an area like this as they're getting close. What are we doing in this area? What does Jesus tell them while he's there? Whom say men that I am? Peter gets it right. Thou art the Christ. Jesus says on this rock, on this truth, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not, you know what? That's why we weren't scared when we went into the Muslim territory the other day. I mean, you want to talk about Muslim territory. I mean, we were right in... Muslim area, great big mosque there. And you know what? I didn't, I wasn't really physically scared because we're in America. But spiritually scared, I wasn't even thinking about that. That's, that's not even a thought. You know why? Because the gates of hell, the spiritual darkness of this world, it's not going to prevail against us. When we are proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the Christ, we win that spiritual battle every time. It has more power. Than, uh, than any message that the devil has out there. And so I, do, I think it's very likely that all Jesus is doing in this passage is he's just showing the disciples that on this rock or on this truth of Jesus being the Messiah, he's going to build his church. And that does not prove the church started then or that Jesus was starting to build the church. Understand Jesus or God had been doing a work in Israel for a long time. Now, Israel did a very bad job, but there were people of faith throughout the centuries, weren't there? There were definitely were people of faith. And but at the same time, there was still a lot more to do. Jesus said, you know, there's other uh, other sheep that are not of this fold that he has. He wanted the he wanted uh, his church to be comprised of people from all nations. And we can read that in the Old Testament. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so understand, 
that what ended up causing the gospel to explode and expand in a big way, it was on that truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I think that's all he's probably trying to do right there. He's showing they would have power over the gates of hell or the evil spirits of this world. Because again, in the Bible too, often when it refers to the gates, you know how he stood in the gates, it's showing uh, an authority that they had. If he was somebody that sat in the gate, he was somebody that had authority. He was somebody that people came to for judgment. And I think when he's saying the gates of hell are not going to prevail, the authorities, the spiritual forces, the powers of hell, they're not going to prevail against you. So if we do, if we find out a bunch of witches are out there praying against our soul winning efforts, we're not scared. We find out the Muslims are praying against us, we're not scared. Not spiritually. It's not spiritually. Physically, you know what? We see the disciples getting roughed up all the time. We see them getting killed a lot. We see in the future God's people getting killed. But you know what we don't see us being prevailed over spiritually? They're not going to win in that area. We're, we, we have all the power. We have all the spiritual power when it comes to these things. And the gates of hell cannot prevail because we have the truth. Not that Baptists are the best, even though we are. You know, not, not anything like that. No, we have the truth that Jesus is a Christ. He is, he is the Messiah. And so, you know, we're going to keep spreading that truth. And, and you know what? Um, nobody should be scared spiritually when they go out giving the gospel. But you know what I would like for, what I would like for you to do? Next time you're out giving the gospel and you're not scared, remember why. Remember why you're not scared. Because Jesus Christ has power over the spiritual darkness of this world. The gates of hell can't prevail against you. And so just understand that that's why the devil uses the governments of this world and he uses physical things against us. But spiritually, he's got nothing on us. And so you don't need to be afraid, but there's a really good reason that you're not afraid. And I think we all, if we acknowledge that and remember that, I think it will just embolden us even more. You know, let's take the gospel you know, we, we don't, you know what we're planning on a few weeks or a couple weeks going to Jewish territory and giving the gospel. You know how spiritually scared I am of that? Not at all. Not, and again, because we're in America, I'm not even really physically scared either. But I mean, honestly, I'm not scared at all. We have, we have power. And um, in Israel, I might be a little physically scared because they'll, you know, they'll act exactly the way they did back then. Spiritually, not at all. So anyway, uh, I hope that that helps and I uh, hope that uh, you'll, you'll have a new and renewed boldness in your soul winning efforts. So with that, let's pray dear Lord. We thank you so much for this uh, lesson we have in your word. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to learn from it and help us to be bold in our witness and uh, help us to never be afraid uh, to go to these spiritually dark places uh, with the light of the gospel. And I pray you help us to be effective. As we try to uh, build your kingdom in your name, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.